capable of keeping his promises, part four. Um, we've come to the end of Isaiah as we've looked um, more recently in 12 to 31, which is really God's arguments that he is a God capable of keeping his promises. And what is his promise? That indeed his people should be comforted, that he will indeed bring them back from exile. He will restore them again, despite their sinfulness um, that has required them to be sent off. And despite their doubts as they would be a people of exile, when they would read these words, God is a faithful God. And so what we see, it's almost like a court case that is taking place beginning in verse 12. And here God has taken the stand again. And he's declared what? He's declared his sovereign right over all creation. And he's encouraged the people of God that his plan will in fact unfold, but they must do what? They must wait. They must hope. And I may say this again later in the message. I think that could be um, perhaps one of the more difficult things to do in the Christian life or just in life in general is to wait. We know something is going to take place, but then we have to wait on it. Because we don't live in a society that teaches us to do what? To wait. Even last night, I was on, the, on a phone call with uh, Amazon customer service. Um, I was, and they, they told me it was going to be there yesterday. Now, I had just ordered it Friday, and they didn't come through. So I called them, and it, well, the reason I called is because they actually said it had been delivered, and it wasn't delivered. So I thought, did someone steal it? Did they take it away? And, and I called and said, oh, no, it was a false scan. Um, that happens from time to time. I said, a false scan? But they said it was on my porch near the front door. And it was 6.22 p.m. when it was delivered. How can that be a false scan? So I said, well, let me speak to the supervisor. And I spoke to the supervisor. and said, yeah, it's a false scan. Uh, what we're going to do is send you another product out right away. Is that satisfactory? I said, well, perhaps... Um, but she said, well, Mr. Hargrove, I see you indeed, you did call yesterday and we guaranteed it that it would be there. Therefore it's going to come on Tuesday. Now, Tuesday, how can it be Tuesday? You said it was going to be Saturday. So they said, what we're going to do is this, such, since you're such a good customer, we're going to send that out again. And this one will come today. I said, well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Like here you are. Oh, I didn't get it in 24 hours. We've become spoiled, haven't we? I, pray, I pay for prime. It's supposed to be here no more than two days. We don't like waiting, do we? We don't. And that carries over into our spiritual lives. God gives us a promise and he says, I will do something in a certain way and at a certain time. And then we say, when God? Oh, we say, why is this happening now? Why am I going through this? But we need to understand that our God is a great God. He is not bound by time or elements. And most definitely, he, has, he is not bound by any human power that could possibly thwart his plans. There is a divine plan for our lives and for his glory. Now, it's important, friends. It's so important that you always include the thought of God's glory when you consider your benefit. God does all things for our benefit and his glory. You might say for his glory and our benefit. We can never divorce one from the other. And we surely cannot divorce glory from that thought. We may say God does all things for his glory, which is absolutely true. And we don't have to mention our benefit. 
There is a benefit to it, and for that we are thankful, but not necessary. Now, what we have to do when we think this way about being impatient for God's plan to unfold, we have to arrest sort of these emotions, our emotions of frailty, and replace them with a faith that is grounded in a proper view of God, the reality of God and His majesty. That if we can live a life, a life uh, that honors the Lord, that is a life of satisfaction. That is a life of purpose. And in that life of purpose and satisfaction, there will come comfort. And then you can say to your own soul, I'm living for the glory of God. And if you can say that to your own soul, that means that you're living to the highest purpose in the universe. Do you agree with that? There's no purpose higher than that. Now, some of you, uh, if you think about some of the purposes you live prior to knowing Christ, those purposes were very temporal, were they not? And there may be even some of you today, you hear my voice, and you're living for temporal purposes even now because you're not walking as you should with the living God. But when we think about a life prior and a life now and a life in the future, we have to discard any purposes we had before and say, God, I want to live to your glory and to your honor. Whereas before, some of us who came to the Lord later in life and we had a pattern of sin and rejecting and rejecting our holy God, we look back at it with regret. And now what we have to do is to live the rest of our lives to the glory of God and for his purposes. I give you a reminder of the shortest trial ever. The shortest trial. I've mentioned it in closing last week, but I just mentioned the date and what happened. But let me give you some of the details. The trial of Brian Colley at Winchester Aziz on Monday, December 14th, 1959, for the murder of Rupert Steed has been described as the shortest murder trial on record disingenuously perhaps since at that time all guilty pleas to murder requiring no evidence were perforce very short he pleaded guilty to the crime and was sentenced to life in life in prison lasting the trial lasted as i said before still true only 30 seconds that's a short trial is it not And you remember before I said the longest trial, at least to date, a jury trial, is seven years. And it costs the government $15 million. Seven years, $15 million, and they actually didn't get um, the verdict that they wanted. And here, a murder trial, I did it. So, okay, you did it. You're guilty. Life in prison. Trial is over. And my point being then, and even now, God is speaking and he is saying, I'm the everlasting God. I'm the faithful God. I'm the creator. Trust me. Then we should believe him. And one says God is on the witness stand. And he's saying, here is the evidence. Will you accept the evidence? So a question is this really, or really a statement. You must decide. Because in one sense, every morning, um, believers must decide. Every time you hear the preaching of God's word, you have to believe whether or not words written over 2,000 years ago are viable for your life today. You have to decide every time you hear the word of God whether or not you want to believe it. And if you believe it, then what will you do if and truly you have accepted it? Now, there is a valuable lesson for us to learn from Jesus 
and the father of the demon-possessed boy. Uh, and let's just turn there briefly because I, I was just going to quote one verse that I want us to see. We'll get to that verse, but I want us to understand a bit of the context and turn with me to Ma- Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9 and verse 15. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to him to greet him. And he asked, what are you discussing with them? Uh, one of the crowd answered, saying, Teacher, I brought to you my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and sniffens out. I told your disciples, the disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Um, and he answered them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And it says, when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And what happened? He asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And at times he would be thrown into a fire or into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and do what? Help us. And notice Jesus' response, verse 23. And Jesus says, if I can... All things are possible to him who, what? Believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my what? Unbelief. See, that's my point. And some of us live in that area of, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. Lord, I know that you're creator. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're holy. I know that you're righteous. I know that you're good. I know that you're merciful. Uh, but why is this happening to me? Help my unbelief. I know that you love me, and we can sing songs of God's love, even, even as we sang earlier. And the last song that we sang is one of my favorites. How great the Father's love for us. And we understand this great love when he would sacrifice his only begotten son. But still, it seems that even at times we say to our souls, God, do you love me? I believe, help my what? Unbelief. And so, in Isaiah, as this chapter comes to a close, God is making statements through Isaiah, his prophet, to say, believe, trust me. Now, The statements leading up to 27 to 31 will help us draw it to a conclusion, if you will. Briefly, in verses 1 to 4 in Isaiah 40, turn back there, Isaiah 40. He provides words of comfort. Indeed, comfort the people of God. These two statements, they will reaffirm God's promises, God's abilities to keep his promises then and now. He is a God of comfort. We see that in verses 1 to 4. And then I would say in verses 6 to 8, he promises what? His revelation of his glory. And he contrasts his glory with the glory of men. The glory of men, it's like the flowers of the field. They're there one moment and they're gone the next. I'm a faithful God. It's an everlasting faithfulness. The faithfulness of man, uh, they claim that they will be faithful, but it's only for a moment and it's gone just like a flower. I was out of my run this morning, as I do early when I'm going to preach, and uh, giving a, a bit of a sermonette on what I'm going to preach later. And beautiful s- sunrise, 
um, coming over the mountains there. And I saw these little wildflowers, little budding yellow flowers all over the place. They weren't there, you know, a month ago. And come July, where will they be? Gone. Because it's like the flower of the field. And so then in verses 9 through 11, what does God do? He says, I'm going to commission voices to announce my coming. Behold our God. I'm going to announce that I'm a God of might, but I'm also God of eminence. And when I say God of might, remember he says his ruling hand will be with him, but also God of eminence, I will be with you and I will care for you gently. We might even say he's a God of transcendence. He is beyond us. He is other than us. He is outside of us. He is great. He is high and lifted up. But a God of eminence, he is a God that is with us. And this is why Christ is called, referred to as Emmanuel, because it is God, what? God with us. And then in verses 12 to 26, what do we see there? He argues against the doubting hearts of Judah and states his absolute sovereignty. I am the God who has measured out the heavens. I have marked the heavens. I've calculated all that I've created. I've weighed them all. All creation and every earthly power is insignificant before the living God. So therefore, why would you not believe me? And last week, what did we consider, even from my outline, just to remind you, number one, that God will keep his promises because he is sovereign over history. He will keep the promises I'm sovereign over history. The number two, God will keep his promises because he is holy in character. So verses 21 to 24, I'm sovereign over history. Verses 25 to 26, I am holy in character. I will indeed be faithful. And then now here, verses 27 to 31, here is a closing statement in this court case, if you will to the people of Judah, not just to the people of Judah. I would say it's the saints throughout history. If you will wait on Yahweh and his timing and trust his ways, you will find peace for your souls and spiritual power that will help you sort of traverse the various issues of life. But you must wait. We can remind ourselves of texts like, if you will, um, just go there briefly, Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, and what does it tell us there? Isaiah 26, even in verse 3, it says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And then the admonition, trust in the Lord forever, for in God, Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock. And what does this communicate? This sense of stability. Um, He is a God that is immutable. He is absolutely trustworthy. Place your hope in him. Wait on him. He will deliver. Isaiah 55. Familiar text, but let's look at it nonetheless. Isaiah 55. And what does it tell us there? Isaiah 55. This idea that we must trust God even when circumstances may pry at our emotions and our thinking and want to question the living God. Isaiah 55, 89. And it says clearly, right? My thoughts are not your what? No, my ways. My ways. Your ways are not my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
Aren't you glad that God's thoughts are higher than yours? Can you get an amen? (laughs) Oh, my word. What would life be if he thought as we did? Where would we all be? His thoughts are beyond us. And remember, they're into the heavens, it says. They're vast. And he's not trying to obviously give us a literal measurement. He's saying, you cannot calculate it. So it's clear from this passage, I believe, that God is telling us, if we would just trust him, every doubter through history, they found themselves wondering about the ways and thoughts of God. I mean, is there a person in the sound of my voice right now that can say, I've never questioned the divine hand of providence? Can anyone say, I've never called into question the love of God? I've I've never wondered from a full and resolved faith in the one who gave his son for my life. I've lived a life of absolute trust since the conversion to Jesus Christ. Can anyone say, I have, I have, I have, I have? I'll give you the answer. You can't. Because all of us are frail, are we not? All of us are in a process, in that process to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we can say more, I trust him more. We can say the periods in between my doubts are are far and in between, if you will. You can say that I do not question the love of God because time and time and time again, he has proven himself true. And what we must do, the foundation for even that thought is nothing more than the cross. Say, for instance, it would not be possible, but let's just conjecture, if if you will. Uh, If it were possible that since you become a Christian and Christ has saved you and your future is secure, you have not seen a track record of God's love. The experience has all been terrible. Not possible, but let's say if it were true. But there would still be the cross, wouldn't there be? There would still be the cross. It's the trump card, if you will. It's the equalizer. It says, yes, I can look at life and the circumstances seem to be bleak and hard. And they were for Judah. They thought to themselves, how can we ever leave this nation that has us here exiled? But there's the cross, not for them, but for us. For them were the promises of Yahweh that says, I'm a God to be trusted absolutely. Now, at times, all of us may waver to a certain degree. For the immature mind, it may be a constant struggle. But even for the mature person, they may revert back to some of their immature ways. Said a different way, even the most mature person will have moments in life where they don't trust God the way that they should. Do you all agree with that? Moments. And wherever you may find yourself in your journey right now, whether it be strong or weak, whether it be striving with full force, whether it be perhaps staggering a little bit, This is a message for you. So these two statements will reaffirm, in fact, God's capability to keep his promises then and now. I don't need that. So um, consider with me the first statement. And it's this. The eternal creator is fully aware of your needs. Let me read the text. 
Isaiah 40. I'm just going to read the entire passage. 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, how many of you have seen that, those verses on t-shirts and on hats and on belts and on pins everywhere? Have you not? And it's generally an American ball eagle, which, you know, that's, that's a bit of, I think, American arrogance there. Uh, no bald eagles of that type in Israel. And uh, it's on a coffee mug or it's on something. Uh, It's everywhere, on towels. There it is. I'm going to mount up wings like an eagle when I'm tired. This is my hope. Like me this morning. I went out for my run. I was tired. I'm going to claim Isaiah 40, 27 to 31. Not. Not. (laughs) Uh, Three people asked me this week, some that used to, I pastored before. They, hey, pastor, I have a question for you. And it was so interesting with biblical questions, and I re- responded to them. And it's so interesting that all three of them, my first issue with them was that it's out of context. And I said to all three people, here are three words. The first three words I learned in Greek exegesis class here at the Master's Seminary was context. What was the second word? Context. What was the third word? Context. Out of context. So Isaiah 40, 27 to 31, unfortunately has been ripped at times from its context and not preached properly. And when you preach it properly, it is very poignant for us when we think about what God is saying and why he is saying it. He is a faithful God. And this is not a verse of one to say, wow, um, I'm you know, running this marathon, I'm halfway through, but Isaiah tells me this. No, it's not that. This is a verse that says, here are the people of God, and they're in exile. And they're wondering, when will we return? Life is difficult. It's hard. Babylon is a great nation. God is saying that he would bring us back one day. As a matter of fact, God said, we're going to be a part of a people, and there's going to be an excellent kingdom that we will participate in. I don't see it. Where is it? And just like people today in the church age, Christ is saying he's going to come again. And Christ is saying that he's going to rule over all. But we can look through history and see martyr after martyr that is slaughtered for the causes of God. And some of them may have cried out, Lord, where are the wings of the eagle? How do I not be so tired in the midst of serving you? So notice This first truth, he is fully aware of your needs. We must start there. Notice the language. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? And even the wording is important uh, when it says, why do you say, place in an imperfect. And what he's saying, why do you keep on saying? So there was probably a lament of the people. 
Some are asserting that perhaps it was a rebuke of God. But I don't think so. I think they will continue to say this and they were lamenting and saying, God, where are you? Will you help us? Do you hear us? And so they're lamenting. Uh, In the Net Bible, I like their translation of this. And they said, why do you say, Jacob, and why do you say, Israel, the Lord is not aware of what's happening to me? My God is not concerned with my vindication. Does he know what's happening to me? Why does he not vindicate us? Well, they had no reason to be vindicated. They were there because of their disobedience. And the only reason that God will bring them back is because he is a gracious God. They cry out and they say, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. And justice is an important word used 43 times in the book of Isaiah. And when it's used uh, in Isaiah and obviously other places as well, it's a messianic term. Because it's saying that that Messiah will come and he will establish justice on the earth. And it's also an expectation of God's people that they live justly, that they live righteously on the earth. And what the people of God are saying, God, where is our justice? When are you going to make things right? You're a God of justice. And remember even Abraham? And what did Abraham say about God? Will not the God of all the earth, what, do rightly? Will he not do justly? And so the people of God are wondering, where is our justice, God? Why so long, God? And this is often the lament even of the psalmist. We find the psalmist at times crying out, how long, O God? Do you see, O God? And this may be a lament for some of you as well. God, are you aware of what I'm experiencing? Of course he knew their way. He says, my way is hidden from the Lord. How can it be hidden? Well, he's the one who created the heavens and the earth. Um, He knew their way because he is the maker of the way. Isaiah 42, turn there with me. Isaiah 42 in verse 16. 42, 16. And what does it tell us? God will do what? How will he faithfully move and work? I will lead the blind by a way they do not know and paths they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These things I will do and I will not leave them undone. Is that a promise or a promise? It is a promise. So he knows the way and God is saying, I'm leading you presently. This path that you're on, it may not seem as if it's the correct one. You're surely wondering how long you'll be on this path, but it is my design. Look at 4316, 4316. The thought there, thus says Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. I will guide you. Verse 19, behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Look at 4817. Look at 4817. And 4817, what do we see there? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit. He says, who leads you in the way in which you shall go. It's pretty clear when they make a statement, God doesn't know our way. Is it hidden from us? Of course not. He is the one that 
created all things. He knows your way. He knows your circumstances. So he offers them encouragement. There's an encouragement from God's character. Notice verse 28. Go back to Isaiah 40. The second supporting point is this. The encouragement from God's character. Verse 28. And it says here, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? So that's the encouragement from God's character. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? So he goes back to the thoughts, if you will. Um, look back with me to verse 21. And this is really how it starts in verse 12 following. But in 21 especially, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? So this series of rhetorical questions, it's meant to sort of jar the emotions and the thinking and one sense say to self, yes, that's right. I should know this. He encourages them. So the repetition is there obviously for emphases, but it's meant, I believe, to to stimulate the emotional and spiritual senses. All of us, I think, would agree um, that we've had conversations that require us to repeat things in the conversation. Have you ever had one of those? You probably had one this morning, right? And you have a conversation with someone, and then you say something to them, And you realize, oh, you didn't hear me, did you? And you say it again. And sometimes you have to say it again. And we find spiritually that God repeats spiritual truths to his people because they tend to do what? Forget. This is why so often he says, remember, 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 remember. Because we forget. So he offers this encouragement. He is what though? What's the encouragement from his character? Um, Notice what he says. The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth. uh, Here's your encouragement. I don't become weary or tired. And my understanding is inscrutable. So here, Yahweh. um, Eternal. Creator. Everlasting. So if he's the everlasting God, therefore... Every decision he makes is based on a full knowledge. He has no beginning and no end. He is not set to any earthly calendar. He is outside of time. I am that God. I have no beginning like the gods that you would worship. I have no beginning like the gods of Babylon or the gods of Assyria. I am a God outside of time. He is Yahweh, he says. Um, Here, and the LSB would have translated it. Uh, the everlasting God, Yahweh. So Yahweh, I'm the covenant-keeping God, which means I will be faithful to my word. Absolutely. Remember, God has pledged his faithfulness to Abraham and to Abraham's people. And he's saying, I will make of you a great nation. Even if you look to the stars, they would be more than the stars. And I have ratified that covenant with you. Remember, as we considered several, maybe even now months ago, when God with Abraham made that covenant and God walked through the pieces of that offering and God was declaring, if ever I fail, may I be like these dismembered animals. But that is not possible with God. He is the creator. So if I make all things and all things must obey me, 
Babylon must obey me. Every prince must obey me. Every king must obey me. I will bring you back in due time. And that's why, as we continue our time in Isaiah, you will see that's why Cyrus must obey me. And Cyrus will come. And he will defeat the Babylonians. And I will free you. Because remember, all the nations are just a drop in the what? In the bucket to God. Turn with me to Job. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job chapter 9, verse 4. We see here a declaration that God is indeed this everlasting creator, Yahweh. Job 9, verse 4. He says, um, Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defiled him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They do not, <clears throat> they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and his pillars tremble. Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things unfathomable and wonders without number? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Pause there for a moment. I love that verse. And notice what he's saying. When God chooses that I'm going to snatch away, I'm going to end a kingdom or start a kingdom, who can say, God, no, we're going to restrain you. Could the Assyrians say, no, God, we're going to restrain you. Because it only took one angel to kill how many? 185,000. And then Shennacherib goes back to his temple. And what happens there? By the very word of God, as God has declared that he would die, and his two sons come to him in his temple, worshiping his false god, and they slay him in front of his god. You can't restrain him. No. Then notice what it says in verse 13. Um, Well, that's my point. (laughs) Because time is pushing. He is a great God over all the earth. Amen. So question is, go back to Isaiah 40. When I say time is pushing, it means my time is running out. Um, go back to 28, 40, 28. Okay. So if he is in fact, eternal Yahweh creator, of course he doesn't become tired or weary. And of course, he has an understanding that it is inscrutable. So the question is, why he never tires? Because, see, God is unlike the deities of the nations, many of whom actually required rest from their spiritual ventures. Actually, in Greek mythology, there are records of their deities sleeping. Um, Hypnos, the god of sleep. Now listen to that word, hypnos. Then we have what? Hypnosis. He actually, at times, we see records of Hypnos having the power to put Zeus asleep. Put Zeus asleep? Yes, the power was available. And then Aurora. And we think about, you ever seen the northern light? So we call it the what? 
the Aurora. So uh, Aurora is a Greek god, and there's records of her. She had gone to sleep for a while with another god, so she wakes up to continue painting the skies. But we know who paints the skies, amen? When I was up this morning on my walk, and it was, you know, the sun is coming over the hills, and I looked back and I saw, glory to God. Because I saw these beautiful images over those mountaintops, and I said to myself, the God who watches over my life is the one who created those colors. Not some false demonic deity of Greek mythology. It is the hand of the living God. Do you agree with that? Then you say to yourself, if he can paint such skies, then why do I doubt? Hmm, curious. What do I wonder? Interesting. See, even Elijah, remember Elijah? And the prophets of Baal there in Mount Carmel, and he says even them as he, he speaks with great sarcasm. You know, perhaps he's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's relieving himself. No, I got neither sleeps nor slumbers. Amen. Psalm 121. He is a God of aseity. Okay, why a city from Latin? It it means to from self. So if we say God is a God of a seed, it means from self, which means that God is a God of self-existence. He is not created like the false gods that we saw earlier, that you get a craftsman and you put silver over it, gold over it, and then you hammer it down so that it doesn't totter. Um, There's no power outside of himself. So he doesn't become weary or tired. He's the only one that can rejuvenate you because he's the only one with the power. He is all wise. Notice what it says. His understanding is inscrutable. Literally, it's beyond searching out. Um, The Holman Bible says there is no limit to his understanding. The Net Bible says there is no limit to his wisdom. And a little sense of it is there is no searching out of his understanding. And that's the sense of the thought that you'll get from the ESV if you have it or the LSB. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, for a moment, if wisdom, or we can say since wisdom is operating skillfully, then God has created with skill all of the universe... And everything that he does in the universe, he does with skill because he is a wise God. See, it requires skill to bring all things together for good, does it not? I mean, think about sort of redemptive history. It takes a great skill, an all-wise God that can take defiance in the garden. And he can make something good of it. The murder of a brother, and he can make something good of it. The evil edict of Pharaoh, and he can make something good of it. He takes the stoning of prophets and the rejection of God's law, and he can make something good of it. He takes even the the merging of two families together to fulfill an ancient prophecy that indeed there will come a seed from David. This takes great skill. It takes great skill to have the perfect timing of a Messiah that would come and live, and he would die and raise himself again from the dead. This is our all-wise God, and since he is a God of skill, we must Trust him. We must. And it also means this. How does God take, you know, pain and disappointments caused by friends and loved ones? 
for your good and his glory. Why does he at times, you know, delay our prayers and at times say no to our prayers? Because he's a God of divine wisdom. How does he use the persecution of the church to to actually grow the church? Because he's a God of divine wisdom. How does he use a wicked people, Babylon, to punish a wicked people, Judah, and in the end say, I'm going to free you from them because it's enough punishment. It's through wisdom. This is why Romans 11, 33 to 36 says that there is his wisdom is beyond measure. Here's the second major point. The eternal creator is fully capable of meeting your needs. Yes, he's aware because he's what? Eternal. He's a covenant God. He is indeed the creator, but he's capable of meeting your needs. Now, what bleeds through Isaiah, and really we might say this every book for that matter, is God's sovereign control of all things. It is God's desire and his right and his ability to do as he pleases. Um, Some of us state it this way. Some of us may be aware of a problem, but we have no ability to do anything about the problem. Have you ever found yourself in that predicament? I mean, I saw a horrible story. Just, I don't, the human heart, what it is capable of doing sometimes is beyond measure, it seems. I saw uh, three teens uh, carjack a, a 73-year-old lady, and they take her car, uh, and, and I won't give you the details because it's somewhat gruesome, and in broad daylight, and they drive away, and they leave her dead in the streets. I thought the heart of man is wicked. How is this possible? And now, and you saw other people, because there was some footage of it, and you saw one car noticing and looking and thinking something's going on here. And when they pull away, you saw the truck try to follow them. And other people, the story says, they were shouting and shouting, she's outside the car, she's outside the car, stop it. And they couldn't stop it. And the one person was following her. They came to her and just comforted her in her last days on this earth. I mean, all of us, had you seen a situation like that, surely you would have done something about it. I wanted to do something about it, but we have what? Limitations. But not with the divine. No limitations whatsoever. There have been many situations I wish, oh, I would intervene. I would save. I would change. And here's the thing about it. Because I'm not everlasting, because I'm not a covenant keeping person the way I should be. Because I'm not the creator of all things, because I'm not all wise, I don't always know what's best, the best way to intervene. I think all of us would just save the first time you heard a request, would you not? Save. Right. A dear couple that's visiting with us now, going to Poland, taking medicines in the Ukraine. And I think all of us would say automatically, stop. Too many innocent people have died. Let it stop right now. But in the divine mind, he says there is a purpose behind this. And we don't always understand his ways. And this is why, again, Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Why does he allow, why has he allowed people throughout history to suffer? Why has he allowed martyrdom? Why does he allow his children to have cancer? Why does he allow 
early death, as we would say, they died too early. They had so much ahead of them. Why? Why is a woman that is simply leaving her job, going to her car, why is that her last day on the earth? We don't know at times. We don't. And sometimes trying to give an answer is the worst thing that you can do. But there is but one answer, and it's a universal answer, which is trust the living God. I don't have the answers. And as a pastor, there have been many times I've been bedside with people that are dying, sick. They get that news. I don't have the answers. But I can point them to God. Let's finish up by the four supporting truths here that we need to consider. So we see verse 29. He's capable. Surely he's capable because they're in need of strength because they're wearied and tired. Verse 29, the source of spiritual strength. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. A beautiful wording. Um, so gives, continues to give. And, and when he says increases, it, it, it's, uh, the wording is saying he continues to increase as they need renewed energy. And what is important about this? Uh, this is really a declaration throughout uh, redemptive history because God is a giving God. Amen. And what has God done? God gave life and he gave people a land. He gave them commandments and he gave them prophets and he gave them victories and he gave them forgiveness. And at times he would give them answers when they sought him. He gave visions so they could have direction. And at times he gave chastisements to bring them back to him. And then he would offer deliverance. He's a giving God because what does he do? He gave his son. And then he gave a promise, and the promise is this, I will never leave you or what? I'll forsake you. Yahweh is a fountain of living waters, and he is there for thirsty souls, but people tend to do what? They want to drink from a well that's polluted with the poison of the world, things that are temporal when Yahweh is right there. The whole of redemption is this, God giving. You say, wait a minute, the whole of redemption is this, God giving? Yes. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave Ephesians 1, 6, 12, 14 to the praise of his glory. So we might say it is this, God loved, he gave to the praise of his glory. And we benefit from that, amen? He is a giving God. So therefore, can anything escape his notice? I think not. He is a source of spiritual strength. He gives. But secondly... The need for spiritual strength. The need for spiritual strength. That's the need. Notice verse 30. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Um, and one Old Testament scholar, I love him a lot, Alex Mortier, French scholar, um, said this, and I'll just quote it. Both verbs mean being overcome by circumstances. But in the former case, It is through lack of inner resource and the latter through the objective hardening of life. Unlike the God of verse 28. And what is he saying here? When it talks about you grow tired and weary and you stumble because life is hard and it weighs on you because you don't have the inner resources. 
to get through it all. I mean, we know that to be true from all of us, even from a physical level, right? I go out for my little runs and I'm picking up the pace a little bit because overcoming this sort of injury here, but I get tired. I do. I took the elevator um, this morning. <laughs> Someone was getting in with me. Oh, they actually saw me coming in and they said, oh, you're a little tired from your run this morning. I said, yeah, I'm going to save it for preaching. <laughs> tired. It happens to us. But notice what he says. You would think, okay, the people that are going to get tired are the elderly and the weak and the feeble. He says, no, even youths, they get tired. And when he says young men are um, actually vigorous men is what it's saying. The, the wording is very particular. So when he says here in your text, it says in verse 30, young men are vigorous young men. It is saying uh, from a word is saying to be chosen. And what is saying chosen young men, fit young men. When we think about someone that would be an uh, Olympic athlete, you'd say, oh, he has what it takes. He's a fit young man, and you choose them out. That's what would happen in the games. You saw someone that had the potential, you choose them, and what God is saying, even the choices of men do what? But not only do they stumble, notice what the wording says, they do, how how do they stumble? Badly. Young's literal translation says, young men utterly stumble. Uh, The ESV says, these young men shall fall exhausted. And the Net Bible says they will clumsily stumble. When a person utterly stumbles or clumsily stumbles, what does it mean? You may think about someone being drunk. That would be one reason for it. But if it's someone that's exerted themselves and they push themselves to the max, you may at the end do what? Oh, boy. I made it. I've done that before. I remember my football days. Um, we were talking last week about working out. I said, you know what? I, I, who likes to do 100 sprints? But you knew it was necessary for the fourth quarter. Because if you didn't put in the work come fourth quarter, you were like, coach, take me out. <laughs> take me out. I'm tired. And someone is running a race, they're exerting themselves. And I've seen it several times, even in Olympic competition, that runner has exerted himself with all of his might. And they come to the finish line, and it's it's this way. Oh, boy. And there are times when I would, in my brief athletic times, (laughs) you end of a hard day and a hard practice, and you just plop on the bench. I'm tired of beat. Don't talk to me. It won't make sense, whatever I say right now. He says, even young men become tired. So Judah, I know. I hear you. I see you. But I am the source of your strength. You hear preachers talk about burnout or Christians talking about burnout. I believe burnout only takes place if you're not tapping into divine resources. Yeah, we do need a recharge, do we not? Yeah. People that burn out is because they're running in their own might. They're trying in their own might. And they're not going to Yahweh, the everlasting covenant-keeping creator, because he is the source of strength and saying, God, renew me. I need renewal. And that's why you cannot possibly... Be renewed if you do not spend time with the living God. 
I didn't say time listening to sermons. It's a benefit, but time with the living God. So he says here, and this word stumble is very interesting. I, I wish I could give you all the examples of it. At times it means to stumble or to stagger or to falter. But it, interesting, it can be carry this idea of, of collapsing. Even in Daniel chapter, it's Daniel chapter 11, where it talks about the nations collapsing before one another. And that's appropriate even in this passage because the nations are just a drop in the bucket before God. Doubt and self-reliance is a bad equation. It's going to sap you of spiritual energy. But what about the condition? Look at verse 31, the condition for spiritual strength. There's a condition. Yeah, it's readily available. The, The source is obviously God. There's obviously a need because we do become tired, but there's a condition that's placed on it. Here it says, notice the contrast, yet those who wait for the Lord. A long time to get here. But we have to set it up. Wait for the Lord. And and the Hebrew word here for wait, it carries the idea of expectation to hope. And that's why in some of your margins, you may see that it says those who hope in the Lord. You, You wait with expectation. Some people can wait. And you're like, oh, but is it going to happen? I'm not sure. You're, you're twiddling your thumbs. Or you can wait with expectation. Like uh, my wife, Joanna, um, she, when it comes to things that we may do or plan, um, she doesn't like surprises. So I said, what about for your birthday? Do you want a surprise? No. Uh, what about what we're going to do on vacation? Do you want a surprise? No. And why is she that way? She will tell you she likes anticipation. So I tell her, I lay it all out. This is what we do. Uh, we're going to get on one of the, um, what's this, Elon Musk rockets and go to the moon and come back. <laughs> no, <laughs> not right. Can't deliver on that one. See, I told you. <laughs> but we lay it all out. This is what we're going to do. Then there's what? Anticipation. But she also has to trust me. So God, the, the Hebrew word that is used here is not just to wait I don't know. It's to wait with anticipation. So the people of God is saying, those who hope in the Lord, those who are waiting on the Lord. And the language also is communicating who continue to wait, who are constantly waiting. And it implies you have a relationship with the living God. And if you have a relationship with the living God, even in the most dire of circumstances and situations, you can say, I hope in God. When you get bad news, I hope in God. When you aren't sure what will be the outcome, you wait on the living God. And this is those. So hear me, people of Judah. Because even your young men are stumbling. Even your youths, they're tired. But I'm a God that does not tire. And I'm giving you, and I'm willing to give you the source of strength if you would just hope in me. Difficult to hope, isn't it, sometimes? But we must. Isaiah 8, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 33, Isaiah 49, 64, all tell us about waiting for the Lord. But at times there is a divine delay. God's timing isn't always our timing, is it? I think we all know that. Um, But for some reason, he at times delays, and it causes us to grow, and it, it forces our hand to hope and to wait. And to ask ourselves some of the most important questions in life. Do I believe the living God? 
Notice, if you will, the result of spiritual strength. It's this. Three things here. You'll get really four. You'll get new strength. You'll be invigorated. And Paul realized that. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9? For when I am weak, then I'm what? Strong. You'll get new strength. You, you literally say you keep putting on strength. And then you'll mount up like wings of an eagle. And that's a verse that people love to talk about. Mounting up wings like an eagle. Um, Psalm 103.5, it says, He will satisfy you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And what does it mean to mount up like wings of an eagle? It's this idea that God, as we rely on him, he will be the source of our energy. And when you see an eagle soar, when he soars, he's doing what? He is catching the what? He's catching the wind. You've seen hummingbird. Amazing how many times per second they can flap their wings. Necessary to keep themselves above. An eagle and other birds, they, you see them sort of gloriously just through the air like this because they've caught the wind. A slight, ever slight little shift and they're down again. So the image for us is this. Don't be like a hummingbird, if you will. Yeah, they're cute, but don't do it. You're just flapping your wings. And you're weird and you're tired. No wonder, because you're resting in self. Be like that beautiful and elegant eagle. And he takes up the wings of the air, the wind, if you will, and it propels him. And this is why the translations carry this idea, you will soar like. It's not saying you're going to have wings. And there's some that take that position. No, you, you'll be like one. So the people of God would have noticed. They would have looked into the sky and said, yes, I've seen them soar around. I know that the wind pushes them and guides them. But you have to trust. Then as a result, you will run and not get tired. You will walk and not become what? Here's a final, not before, the, before that final thought. I want you to notice something. Just two more minutes. Notice something. And I saved it for this point, but you'll notice weary in the text. You see it in verse 28. He does not become what? Weary. Verse 29, he gives strength to the what? To the weary. Use grow what? Weary. But they who do what? Trust in the Lord will not become what? Weary. Will not become weary. Here's a final thought for you. We'll close here. Thank you for the extra time. How will you deliberate? What will be your verdict? I gave you the longest trial, seven years. The shortest one, 30 seconds. Both required deliberation. But the question is, how long will you deliberate? And the scripture tells us, how long will you waver between two decisions? And what will be your verdict? I will trust God regardless of circumstances because he is an everlasting, faithful, creating God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your words you give us. I pray that we can apply them to our lives. In Christ's name, amen.